And you know, I don't think most people realize how political the notion of a Messiah was, particularly to the Jewish person that was eagerly awaiting this Messiah when Jesus showed up. And that's why, by and large, they missed it, because they were not looking for a guy that was going to ride into town on a donkey and die on a cross. They were looking for a guy that was going to ride into town on a war horse and strike down Rome. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt, and I am very grateful to have on the show today, Mike Meharry. Um, he serves as the National Communications Director at the 10th Amendment Center. Um, he is the author of four books, and um, he's also um, has his own podcast called Godarchy, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And I'm very excited um, to talk to him about about that. But um, I want to ask you first, Mike, first of all, thank you so much for being on the show. Tell me, um, what, what made you start this particular podcast? All right. First off, let me give the disclaimer. I don't normally sound like I sound today. I'm battling the ravages of the common cold. I do not have coronavirus. <laughs> Apparently, it is possible to get regular sick still. So, <laughs> but yeah, well, uh, I appreciate I'm sorry, the- I'm sorry you're not feeling good. Thank you for for muscling up and being on the show. We uh, we really appreciate it. Oh no worries. I'm a hockey player. Hockey players play hurt. So that's right. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so I, I started – so Godarchy actually started out just as a website. Uh, I think it was like back in 2017, um, and you can find the website at godarchy.org. And really, I, you know, I don't know what the impetus was. I just really felt like that there needed to be a voice in the Christian world that was focused on being – it wasn't even anti-state initially. It was more anti-war. I got so fed up with the warmongering that we see in so many segments of Christianity, particularly American evangelical Christianity. So I just wanted there to be some kind of counter voice uh, kind of speaking against that and looking at the, the warfare state from a Christian perspective uh, through Jesus's eyes. And over time, it's kind of grown. It's I call it a uh, uh, exploring the intersection of Christian faith and libertarian anarchism or voluntarism is the term that I really like to use best, uh, the idea that right. associations should be voluntary. And uh, the podcast kind of spun out of that uh, a couple of years ago. I just thought, well, you know, I'm, I've got this website. I might as well do a podcast and and explore these things. Again, I just feel like there needs to be a voice out there that is not rah rah go government uh, yeah. for everything that happens. Not just war, but for all of the um, uh, destruction and death that really comes through the state. And I actually made the case in an article and and the podcast episode that I think we're going to talk about today is spun out of that that the uh, state's basically a death cult. You know, everything that it does is predicated on violence, force, and coercion. And war is the ultimate expression of that. And, uh, you know, I, I just want, I really want to hold up a mirror to folks who are so fond of using government. You know, there's a lot of people that want to use government to try to advance uh, their conception of Christian values. And we see it both on the left and the right. 
And I want to hold a mirror up and, and help them to understand that when you are going to the government, you are literally asking your values to be enforced at gunpoint. And, and I think it's important for people to at least grasp that because I think most people don't. They get on this moral high horse that, oh, I'm going to feed the poor through welfare or, you know, right. we're going to we're going to kick the the evil Muslims butts. And they think that this is some kind of virtuous thing from a Christian standpoint. And it's not because you're always using violence. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that's a, that's a good place to start is is, um, you know, the idea that that the, the nature of government is violence, that the that that the the state really only runs on a condition of violence and it, it feeds violence or it feeds on violence. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, there's really no question about it. I mean, you just have to look at how it works. You know, I mean, it, right. it doesn't take any great spiritual discernment. It takes stepping back and recognizing that every single thing that the government does is literally at gunpoint. And I take something that is as innocuous as you can get as an example, and that's a seatbelt law. A seatbelt law is ultimately enforced with the threat of violence and death. People say, no, Mike, that's ridiculous. No, it's not ridiculous because you just have to walk through the various steps. If I'm driving without a seatbelt in the state of Florida, I can be pulled over and uh, I can get a ticket. And if I don't pay that ticket, then my driver's license will be suspended. And if I continue to drive, I will be arrested. And if I resist arrest, I will be hit. And if I resist uh, vehemently enough, I will be shot and killed. So, you know, you've traced anything that the government does, including the way it collects revenue through taxation. Again, if you resist what the government is doing, the ultimate threat is that it will lock you in a cage. And if you resist being locked in a cage, it will kill you. Uh, so just from a practical, pragmatic standpoint, it's very clear that, that this is all rooted in violence, force, and coercion. I don't think anybody can deny that. So the question becomes, what is the legitimate use of violence? And uh, if you ask me, using violence to collect money for your own purposes is not a legitimate use of force. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I And here's the, here's the other um, – I think, and and this goes goes right to the the heart of of your podcast is is um, how does that fact um, and and it is a fact um, how does that fact translate to a need to fight war? And I think we could take it on a lot of different levels, but I really want to focus on the spiritual level. I think that's an important level to to talk about. Um, so how does how does the the um, the government and this um, violent state that it's in, why does it need war um, even outside the boundaries of, of our country? I mean, why would that be important? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like uh, it's almost like energy, you know, it's like food for government. And uh, people may be familiar with Randolph Bourne. He wrote a pretty well-known essay that's titled War is the Health of the State. And he wasn't writing from any spiritual perspective at all. He was merely observing the power that government derives in a state of war. Uh, it, it stirs up patriotism, and, and people start, you know, people who are ambivalent about government suddenly become avid supporters of their government because we are in a war. And uh, I mentioned in the podcast that he kind of stumbled upon a spiritual truth because I believe that all worldly governments, all worldly empires, or as the Bible would put it, kingdoms, this includes the United States, are really in the, the, the 
prototype of Babylon. Like Babylon is the prototype government, the prototype empire. And we see Babylon used throughout the Bible as a descriptor for worldly government, particularly Rome, because it was the oppressive empire at the time. Uh, and we particularly see this imagery playing out in uh, Revelation. Revelation 12 and 13 talks about Babylon, and it's clearly referring to these earthly kingdoms. We know that these earthly kingdoms are the possession of Satan, because that's exactly what Satan tempted Jesus with, uh, or one of the three temptations that that he used right. on Jesus. He offered him all of the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would just bow down and worship him. Well, how do you offer something that you don't yourself possess? Jesus knew that he had these, these possessions and that he could have followed the pathway that every other worldly leader has taken, the path of war, the path of violence. This is exactly what the Jewish conception of the Messiah was, that it was going to be another great king uh, in the image of David who would come in and reestablish the glory of Israel and throw off the Roman yoke. And Jesus had that temptation. He could have done that as well. He could have led this, this revolt. He didn't. He chose to die instead. He overcame death, which I say is the moral authority of the state. It is the ultimate um, uh, what's the word? Characteristic, I guess, of Satan. Uh, theologian Karl Barth called Satan death incarnate, kind of uh, in contrast to Jesus, who is the word, incon uh, the word incarnate or life incarnate because the word gives life. And so the governments of the world that are the dominion of Satan need warfare uh, because it powers it. It gives it more power, and it feeds into the power of death, which is the realm of Satan. And I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm pulling a lot of this uh, from a theologian named David Lipscomb, who was uh, alive in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, actually, the, the denomination, I think it's Disciples of Christ or Church of Christ actually came out of uh, a movement that uh, Lipscomb was very prominent in. He wrote a book uh, about civil government, and okay. so I'm pulling a lot of the, out of out of his book. But one of the things that he says that I think is really profound, uh, in a simple kind of way, as many profound things are, is that if you really think about it, if it wasn't for the state telling you that you need to hate people that are thousands of miles away, you would never fight with them. Like I would never fight an Iranian. Right. If I didn't have the U.S. government telling me that Iran was my enemy, right. Now that's certainly there, there, there's some American interest being you know being upheld by fighting somebody in Iran. Right. So you know, Lipscomb makes the point that it's that's not to say we wouldn't have conflict or or wars on a on a local level. You know, obviously people fight over resources. You know, I might fight over the river uh, that runs between Florida and Georgia or something. You know, or. Uh, we might fight over food sources or something like that, but real global warfare is totally state driven, uh, and and so you just see you see that playing out again. It, it is the ultimate uh, uh, purveyor of death. War is you know there's nothing more destructive from a global standpoint than war in terms of uh, piling up corpses, uh, inflicting pain, destroying property. Uh, creating human misery, and that's the realm of Satan. That's exactly what Satan wants. He wants human misery, and ultimately he wants death. He is death incarnate. He wants us all to die. He wants us to die apart from Christ, and, and what better way to do that than make us hate each other and fight? So I, I think a lot of people 
uh, might hear this and 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 would probably agree. Like would probably. I mean, it makes sense. It's logical if you're a Christian. I mean, it makes biblical sense. I mean, what you're saying is 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 undeniably biblical. It, it is what it it is what it is. Um, but I think a lot of people um, uh, maybe justify or have been taught that um, you know um, defense of our country, you know, literally means going abroad, or that's the best way to defend our country, or um, you know, or, 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 I mean, you could probably name four other or five other justifications for going to war. Um, and, but I think, I, I think it's important that we do look at it from a standpoint of like, what, like, what are we defending actually? If, if what's the point, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I think here's what I would forward to folks, and this is probably going to rattle some cages, but my contention is if you're a Christian, if you have chosen to follow the Prince of Peace, if you have chosen to be a citizen in the kingdom of God, then that is your country. And it is manifested in this world by the church. So in effect, the church is your nation. The United States isn't your nation or Germany or England or wherever you happen to live. Your kingdom is the kingdom of God. And therefore, your moral and ethic framework should be guided by that kingdom moral and ethical framework, which was to put away your sword, to love your enemies, to really be willing to die in order to overcome death. That Jesus died, overcame death, and was resurrected. And I think where people get confused is they go back and they look at the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is bloody and violent. There is no doubt about it. And I think part of that was to show us that uh, utilizing human will and human kingdoms to try to establish the kingdom of God is always going to fail. Trying to do it uh, based on violence and war is not going to work because that's exactly what Israel tried to do. But I think a lot of Christians look at the Old Testament and they see these things that pertain to Israel as the people of God. And so therefore they think it must pertain to their nation to the United States. But Again, that's not your nation if you're a Christian. Your citizenship is in the kingdom of God. So anything that you see when when God is dealing with Israel as a quote-unquote nation, you shouldn't apply that to your earthly kingdom. You should apply that to the church. The warnings, uh, all of those things are, are really applicable to your citizenship in the church. So I'm really asking you to reject uh, this idea of your primary citizenship being with the United States or, or any other country, because as Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve a kingdom that is under the dominion of Satan and also serve the kingdom of God because they're they're in uh, uh, they're in war with each other. So allow me to, to maybe literally play a devil's advocate a little bit. Oh, devil's and, and, advocate. <laughs> right. Let me um, um, ask you this. Like, so if, if that's true, if, if, if we should see ourselves as um, – as a as a Christian nation in a literal sense, and and that we should see our fellow Christians as part of that nation. When we see, um, you know, atrocities, when we see things happening, even maybe not in our own nation, but maybe in other nations. At one point, is it upon us to go and defend those, you know, fellow, um, you know, fellow citizens of Christ? Like, what have you? Th- are those things that 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 you? think about or, or 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 is that like okay it's it, first we got to take place take uh take care of stuff at home first or what are your thoughts on that 
Well, I think when you start looking at, at atrocities, obviously atrocities happen all the time across the world. And, you know, the U.S. government picks and chooses what atrocities, quote unquote, it attempts to uh, uh, remedy. My contention is that using brute force, using the military to try to save people is going to end up killing more people than you save. Uh, prime example is the is Iraq. Iraq is a the poster child for good intentions gone bad. You know, we're going to save these people from the brutal dictator Saddam Hussein. Well, yeah, absolutely. Saddam Hussein was a brutal dictator. But I think if you ask most Iraqis, they're worse off now than they were under the brutal dictator. So, who are we to think that these central planners that run our government are going to be able to figure out when, where, and how to go fix some problem across the sea. Well, it's I think just, that, yeah, I, I, was, I was gonna say, and I think that's that's the key. Like, like the the other aspect of that is is these central planners often lie to, and mislead well, us to, do, into yeah. thinking, right? But let's just, I mean, let's just assume for the sake of argument that their their intentions are perfectly noble. I still wouldn't trust them. It's These are the same people that think they can micromanage the economy. And this is kind of the example I use when I talk about foreign policy because it's hard, to, especially conservatives, it's hard to get them out of the mindset of uh, you know, our foreign policy is noble and good because we're America and we're righteous. And I try to remind them that you understand that when these government – Officials and bureaucrats tried to micromanage the government, you know, set minimum wages and and uh, tax policy and all of this crazy stuff that they're trying to do. That it's always a disaster because there are economic laws that they don't understand and unforeseen consequences that they can never foresee. Right. That's why they're unforeseen. The same people are trying to run the foreign policy, and I would say foreign policy is just as complex, if not more so, than an economy. Right. You know, and so. You know, I'm sympathetic to the idea of, of we should rush in, we. I also don't really think in terms of we because, again, we are the church. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, I bristle at the idea that the United States, which, again, I'm contending is just another worldly government, another worldly empire in a mix of Babylons. I don't understand why anybody would think that it's going to be any better at, you know, I mean, who's to say that somebody in, in, uh, in some other country somewhere, maybe China looks at all of the uh, African-Americans that are incarcerated here because they have a plant. I mean, they might decide they need to come over here and, and, and write that injustice with, with some kind of war. Right. Right. I mean, we're you know, we're not sitting over here uh, immune from uh, our, our own atrocities. So, you know, and again, I, I go back to what is the kingdom ethic? How does Jesus teach us to deal with other people? Uh, he, he teaches us those things again, turn the other cheek, love your enemy, don't repay evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. I think as a church, we can do far more uh, in, in supporting our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living under persecution uh, in other ways than you know, sending the U.S. military in with M-16s to rescue them. Yeah, I, I also think, as you as you mentioned, you know, um, when we think of America, and, and even when we think about the the founding fathers, when we think about the um, how America was founded, um, you know, a lot of times, and, and I think most times, people would refer it to Rome. I mean, you mentioned it before, but I think I think Rome is is you know maybe 
what a lot of people think the um, American founding was trying to emulate or perfect in a way. Um, and, and I wonder like um, if it goes back to, um, you know, I don't know who said it. I think it's attributed to many people, but maybe Benjamin Franklin said, you have a republic if you can keep it. Or, you know, democracy is the greatest government, is the worst government except for it's better than all the others. Right. Um, you know, all those kind of funny things that, that we say and don't really think about. But, but you know, we think about Rome. We think, like, if we are Rome, it was it was Rome that was persecuting the Jews. It was Rome that killed Jesus. It was, right. You know, it's, it's, it's this idea that, like, what makes us think that we're better than than our those in the past? Yeah, we suffer from myopia, and I think everybody does. I mean, that's, I mean, first off, we're indoctrinated into it from the time we're we're born. You know, the uh, <coughs> excuse me, the the glory of America and all our wars are just right. Right, and it, I think it's I think it's valuable at some point to try to sit down and put yourself in the position of somebody in another country. You know, we think that, oh, well, we're justified in being in Afghanistan because of X, Y, Z, and we're, we're the good guys over there. Well, imagine if you're the, the wife of the guy who got his arms blown off in a drone strike, who, who was doing nothing other than, you know, trying to uh, scrape a hoe through the ground and, and drop, grow some plants so his family didn't starve to death. How, how are they perceiving this, right? They're going to look at the United States as this big bully. Why, why are you in my country, right? We don't think of it like that because, because again, we're myopic. And uh, there's a really great uh, thing that Mark Twain wrote that I don't think a lot of people have ever read. I'm not even sure it was published. I think it was discovered after his death, and it's called The War Prayer. And uh, he wrote it as the U.S. was ramping up for the Spanish-American War, and he the, the character puts himself uh, in the place of being in church and, you know, they're having the, the prayer um, and, and he prays this prayer and he's talking about, Lord, help us just blow our enemies uh, arms off and make widows out of their wives. And because he's making the point, this is exactly what we're doing. If you look at it from the other side of the perspective, you can find that on uh, Godarchy. Uh, I actually have, have reprinted that. You can go search for it or just Google it. Yeah. Uh, the War Prayer by Mark Twain. It's really, really powerful. And he says this prayer, and then at the end, everybody thinks he's nuts, you know, um, because they don't see it. And uh, I think we have to look beyond um, our, our own national blinders that we put on and, and take to heart what Paul tells us. There is no Jew. There is no Greek. There is no male or female or slave. We're all one in Christ. And, uh, you know, when we start dropping bombs on a rock, uh, we're, we're inevitably going to be killing fellow believers. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but in World War II, the largest Christian community in Asia was in Japan. It was in the city of Nagasaki, and uh, once the nuclear bomb was detonated, it destroyed that Christian community, killed most of them, uh, and, and Christianity in that area has never been the same until we started seeing the, the revivals in Korea many, many years later, but uh, it all but obliterated Christianity in Japan, and the really sad aspect of this is that they actually used the uh, Catholic cathedral in Nagasaki as the uh, bombing target when they dropped the nuclear bomb. And I just can't wrap my head around anybody who can justify killing a bunch of innocent women and children who are believers in Jesus Christ. 
I, I just I can't get it. But people will well, listen think, to this, and, and they I will be uh, on the other side of that. I and not to interrupt, but I, I just I. I have to say like the other side of that is the non-believers too. Like, like if, if one believes that, that one must come into Christ and that this is, this is the life for us to repent and this is the life for us to come, you know, who knows how many people would have come to Christ and would have repented, you know, had they not died, right. you know, that the week before they were to, you know, do you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, like, exactly. The other That's side exactly of that is I've, almost worse. Yeah. I thought about that before, you know, you're snuffing out a person's, uh, ever having the opportunity to to make that decision, or maybe even hear the message, and but you know, here's what's what frustrates me is I guarantee you, there's people that are listening to this that are yelling at me right now. I'm very angry with me. Um, I, I believe me, I get the emails and mm-hmm. I see the comments when I post things on the Godarchy Facebook page. Anything that relates to love your enemy, or um, you know, uh, anything that's remotely quote-unquote pacifist, I will get fierce backlash. And people will twist themselves into pretzels trying to justify whatever violence it is that they want, want to commit. And I think that when you're, when you're working so hard to justify something, I think maybe you might want to sit back and ask yourself why. You know, why am I having to work so hard? Because I have found in my life as I've gotten older that the things that I've really tried the hardest to rationalize, the reason I was trying to rationalize it is because it wasn't true. And, uh, you know, I really wish people would take a little bit more time and just really sit and look at literally read the Sermon on the Mount and just take it to heart. Don't try to spin it. You know, well, he didn't really mean da da da. Take it at its word for a moment and, and then start putting your, your ethical life into that framework and things start to look a whole lot different. We're talking to Mike Meharry, the, the host of, of the Godarchy podcast, and talking about um, his his latest podcast, which is uh, entitled Christian Warmongering. And uh, and there's a there's a guy you mentioned a few times in this podcast that, that um, I'd heard of that I really haven't read a lot of, but William Stringfellow. Can you tell me a little bit about him and, and some of the things that, that you you uh, that inspired you? Yeah, Stringfellow is. Uh, um he was a Anglican theologian or Episcopal. He was Episcopalian. Uh, he died, I think, in the I want to say the early eighties. Um, he was very prolific in uh, kind of the Vietnam War era and and the years following. And he wrote a fantastic book called Conscience and Obedience, um, which is uh, kind of a look at. The Romans thirteen, uh, as as were any you know anybody who's remotely anti-government will get Romans thirteen thrown at them, and then he also wrote a book about um it's this huge long title but it's basically you know Christian ethic living in a strange world or something like that yeah um and he's not an easy read believe me and um he, you know some of the, I, it's I, it's not that I agree one hundred percent with everything he says but he gives some profound food for thought. Um, that I think we really need to consider. And um, hold on, so I'm going to read something here. Yeah, you know, I was talking about this idea that um, that the moral authority of the state is death. Right. Um, and when we talked about that in practical terms, um, he puts it in more spiritual terms. And he basically he says that um, governments, 
human nations are principalities. And we see that word come up in, uh, uh, I think it's Galatians or Ephesians, Ephesians, you know, where it talks about we're not fighting against flesh and blood, we're fighting against spiritual powers, principalities. And he contends that the state or these these national governments are the preeminent principality in the system and that they are controlled by the devil and that their moral authority is death. And he wrote, among all of the principalities and their legion, species, and diversities, the state has a particular eminence. The state in this context names the functioned paraphernalia of political authority in a nation which claims and exercises exclusive practical control of coercive capabilities or violence, which interestingly uh, kind of echoes what economist Murray Rothbard said about the state, that the state has right. a monopoly on violence. Uh, Stringfellow went on and said the, the precedence of the state hierarchically among the principalities is related to the jurisdiction asserted by the state over other institutions and powers within a nation. Practically, it is symbolized by the police power, taxation, licensing, regulation of corporate organizations and activity, the military forces, and the like. Um, and he calls these principalities demonic. Um, and, and he goes on and says that that their moral authority is rooted in death. So that's kind of that kind of gives you an idea of where Stringfellow has come comes from. And it's interesting to think about this idea of a principality of kind of having uh, a creaturely uh, aspect to it. You know, right? Where they're almost almost a personality. And at first you kind of listen to that like, well, that's weird. But then. If you've ever studied like management, so I have an accounting degree from my first foray through school, and I took a management class, okay. uh, and it talked a lot about the idea of corporate culture, how to develop and maintain a corporate culture. And anybody who's into organizational dynamics will tell you that institutions and organizations have a culture of their own, that as people come into it, they begin to take that on as, as part of their own persona. Think about something like uh, Chick-fil-A. You, know, you go into a Chick-fil-A anywhere in the country, there's a very similar vibe that you get mm -hmm. from Chick-fil-A employees. Uh, on the not-so-good side, there's a very similar vibe you get from cops, you know, that, right. that they're scared and they're going to shoot your dog. So. These, this idea is not really that radical when you think about the nature of institutions and organizations, uh, of having kind of this um, this personality, well, if you will. And if, if you take it to spiritual terms, it's, it's, it's why I think um, whether or not you believe in, in so-called conspiracy theories and things like that, to me it doesn't matter because the great conspirator – if, if you're a Christian and you believe in, in a Satan, if you believe in a devil, if you believe in an, an ultimate malevolence in the world, something that, 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 you know, you don't need a group of people to conspire. It's, it's being done for you. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you see this, you know, it is, it's amazing how you will see across an institution, the same ideas pop up. Right. Even though they're separated by distance, you know, again, police culture really comes to mind. There's this this warrior mentality that's developed in policing in America, and uh, and and you'll see it. Um, Which, by the way, wasn't the if you think about the the police culture, maybe maybe earlier. You know, um, what, what do we think of? We think of the, the, the guy in the tie and the funny hat that's you know helping the old lady cross the street. Right. That's not what you serve. think of today. No. No, and that and that has changed. 
Um, and so, yeah, I agree with you. You know, you don't need a conspiracy, an organizer, because there is an organizer in a spiritual sense. Another place where I really saw this was in the media. You know, people always talk about media conspiracies, and they think like there's four or five guys in a in a room somewhere that are up there deciding what every news agency in uh, the world is going to say. And you know, sometimes if you look at reporting. It does look like, I mean, it looks like they're all reading from the same script. Mm-hmm. Having worked in local news, I know for a fact there's no nothing coming down from on, on high. It's just a massive uh, example of groupthink. You have a bunch of people who think basically the same way, who are pulling basically from the same sources, and so they start to sound exactly alike. There's no conspiracy. It's just a – I don't even know how to how to put it. It's like you throw it all in a whirlpool, and this is what spits out the other end. Well, and that and that and that is why. And I think I think you know, um, on a more secular basis, Scott Horgan goes into great detail about this in his book. But the the idea that um, um, you know that the, that's what happens with foreign policy. That's why our po- foreign, no matter I, in fact, this is something that you told me, and I love it. It's no matter who we vote for, we're always getting John McCain. Right, that's a policymaker because it's it's always the same, and 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 no matter what people run on, no matter what people promise, no matter what happens, it's going to be war, war, more war. Yep, that's Woods' law. Tom Woods is actually the one that coined that to give proper credit where credit is right due. Yeah, no matter who you vote for, you get John McCain. And how many days did it take before uh, uh, Joe Biden dropped bombs? It was 36, 36. Is, is the exact number. And as Scott Horton pointed out, uh, I, I interviewed him for uh, an upcoming episode that's not released yet. But he uh, he pointed out that we were already dropping bombs in Iraq before the Syria thing. But, you know, this is the first time the bombing hit the news and it only took 36 days. And uh, I'm certain we'll see more bombs coming down the pike and people will be happy because at least he's not sending out nasty messages on Twitter. Right, right. Or 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 sending or sending soldiers. He's just sending bombs over. Oh right, you know? right. Yeah, as long as our boys aren't getting killed, it's fine. Right, right. And 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 you know, I think, um, and, and again, when I think about this from a biblical standpoint, from a Christian standpoint, and I think about our, you know, our exemplar, Jesus, you know, and what he did, and and I love the example that you gave of of the um, temptation that he had. Um, to take to take upon him the the world if he wanted it, um, but he didn't take upon the world. He overcame the world, and he did it in such the in the most um, crazy, unbelievable way. Um, and that's what the gospel is really all about. The gospel is about is is in, 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 on one level, it is a radical dissertation on how to overcome tyranny, and it's by. Uh, swallowing it it's by um it's by taking upon you know yourself christ and making him your king because there are more there 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 are worse things than death yeah absolutely and you know i don't think most people realize how political the notion of a messiah was particularly to the jewish person that was eagerly awaiting this messiah when jesus showed up and that's why, by and large, they missed it because they were not looking for a guy that was going to ride into town on a donkey and die on a cross. They were looking for a guy that was going to ride into town on a war horse and strike down Rome. Yeah. That was the anticipation. And it's really interesting in, in the crucifixion. You know, We all know that leading up to that, 
Pilate gave the option of, hey, do you want Barabbas or Jesus? And Barabbas, if you if you look at the Greek and you understand who he was, he was a zealot. He was a rebel. He was a uh, a a person that was uh, trying to stir up the Jews to stand up to Rome to try to overthrow Rome. It was the idea of a military rebel. You know, today we would call them the militia movement. You know, right? And and that was the choice. Do you want this guy back? Do you want the guy who's going to try to do the war, do the thing that you think, you know, that you are anticipating? Or do you want this other Jesus dude who says he's king of the Jews? And they all picked Barabbas because that that was the choice. Yeah. And uh, and, and they, they took the choice of Satan and Jesus went to the cross and he died, ironically, winning the war by going to his death and then conquering Again, Satan being the uh, the incarnation of death. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered Satan. So, th- so that was the end and the the true establishment of the kingdom. But it was extremely political. We we in America have really, I think, in some ways, over spiritualized the gospel. You know, we've made it into fire insurance, and um, mm-hmm. you know, you want to get saved so you can go to heaven and sing with the angels on the clouds, and. You know, I'm not saying that that's not part. I don't know about singing with angels on clouds, but uh, I mean, certainly personal salvation is part of it. But it is also very political. Well, think and about the Lord's Prayer: "Thy kingdom, thy come. kingdom come." It doesn't say, "I'm going to the kingdom." It says, "Bring the kingdom here." Exactly, exactly. And we see, you know, uh, Daniel. We see this idea of empire. This is another thing that Lipscomb gets into. I'll try to encapsulate it real quick. Uh, but if you look at at one of the visions that uh, the king had that Daniel interprets and he sees the the statue and like the head is gold and then the next part is silver. I don't, I don't remember the specifics. Of right. The, Feet of clay. Feet of clay. Things. Right. So these are the empires and you can actually, I mean, it's, it's very clear what they are. The first one was Babylon. The second one was Persia. The third one was Greece. The fourth one was Rome. And the fifth one was all the little kingdoms that would be born up that we're living in today uh, that, that kind of grew out of Rome. And there was one little rock that was carved out of the mountain by the hand of God. So all of these earthly kingdoms are sitting on top one another. So one replaces another, right? Yeah. And then there's this little rock that crushes those final kingdoms. That is Jesus overcoming all of those earthly kingdoms. And you see the same imagery in the New Testament where um, it talks about all of these authorities are going to be put under Jesus' feet. So – Again, it is a very political thing, and it's, I don't. Again, I don't want to say it's only political because it is about personal salvation. It is about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But there is also a kingdom aspect of this, and there's also an ethical uh, and moral aspect to it. That there's a kingdom ethic, you know, that we are to live by. But it, sorry, I lost my train of thought. This is what cold medicine does to you. Um, <laughs> you know, so you go back to that Old Testament. You look at Isaiah. You look at Jeremiah. They give us glimpses of what this new kingdom is going to look like. When when you see this talk of beating uh, swords into plowshares and lion laying down with the lamb, you see this kingdom of peace. That's what Jesus came to bring. Yeah. So you Mike, see, you can, see the saint, the saints joyously watching the fall of Babylon. Yeah. So. My contention is, is that as believers, we are to be trying to inject that ethic into the world today as, as Christ's representatives, as representatives of Christ's kingdom, ambassadors is the, as the uh, word is usually used. 
that's our responsibility to do that. People will say, oh, well, Mike, you're being, uh, you know, pie in the sky. You're being uh, utopian. You know, war's just going to be with us and you just have to deal with it. Did Jesus not tell us? Well, not Jesus didn't tell us. Paul told us with Christ, all things are possible. My question is, do we really believe that? Or is that just for, you know, if we we need some money or, or somebody to get healed? Or do we really believe that the kingdom of God, as it has been presented, is a possibility? If it is, then I think we should work toward it and not blow off it as, as an excuse to say, well, it's impossible because war is with us. Well, and, and it makes you wonder, like, if 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 the Jewish people misunderstood the Messiah so much and so, and 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 it did not understand at all, missed the mark, if you will, in a major way. Um, you know, how much are we missing the mark um, as even as believers, um, you know, of, of how of how um, Zion is going to come, how, how the mm-hmm. second coming is going to arrive to us. I mean, we, we, we have these images, much like the Jews of, of Christ coming and, and, and striking down the enemies of Israel and you know, all these things. And, but, you know, what does that really mean? And, and we don't know, but it's probably not what we think. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I've always been reluctant to get real dogmatic about eschatology, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> are, you pre, are you pre-trib or post-trib? And uh, I always say I'm a pan-millennialist. I think it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I think I might borrow that. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> I stole it from somebody, so feel free. <laughs> well, we're uh, talking again, st- talking to Mike Meharry, um, the host of the, the Godarchy podcast. I really recommend go to God- godarchy.org, go check it out, go listen to his latest episode, Christian Warmongering, which is, I think, the perfect um, prelude to his upcoming episode with Scott Horton, which will come out next week. Is that right? That is correct. So, we, we're recording this on Friday, March 5th. So, uh, a week from then, uh, the Scott Horton interview will air. We're talking, talked a little bit about Biden, and then we also got into his new book, which is called Enough Already, It's Time to End the War on Terror. Fantastic yeah. book, by the way, that I highly recommend. It is a great book. I, I, I had him on a, a couple, uh, about a week or two ago, and, and it's such a, that's a really important book. If you want to know the nuts and bolts of, of why we always get John McCain, yes. that's the book to read. Yes, um, anyway, thank you so much for, for being on the show. What, what are you up to? What, um, how else can, can people support Mr. Mike Meharry? Well, in this context, you know, again, if you just check out uh, godarchy.org, check out the podcast, uh, check out the blog. There are articles. Um, there's, there's an article there talking about uh, the state being a death cult, which is, again, which that episode was based off of. If you don't want to listen and rather read, uh, you can do that. Uh, if you want to follow other things that Mike Meharry is doing, uh, you mentioned uh, I do work for Shift Gold. I do all of the content on their news section of their website. So if you go to shiftgold.com slash news, uh, and there you'll find out about how awful the Federal Reserve is and why it's destroying your economy. Why um, it's funding the death cult. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly what it does. In fact, I've I've used this analogy that the Federal Reserve is the engine that drives the most powerful government in the history of the world. If it wasn't for the Fed monetizing the debt, you wouldn't be able to have the warfare and welfare state that you have today. It's so such a fact. Yeah, that's that's so yeah, that's an important piece that that people need to know about. Yeah, and then if you're into practical politics, check out tenthamendmentcenter.com. Um, we're in the height of what we call nullification season. 
And uh, in, in a nutshell, it's basically using state and local power to undermine overreaching federal authority. So it's a decentralization strategy. It's a bottom up strategy. It's a using uh, kind of a think local kind of strategy. And, um, you know, if you're interested in constitution and, and how we can kind of uh, try to devolve some power back away from DC, you can check out what's going on over there. Well, that, I, have my that, own, uh, I have my own website, michaelmeharry.com. Very good. Check that out. And, and, and there's a, there's a lot going on in, in that scene as well right now. That's, that's kind of an exciting thing that's going on for sure. Um, Mike, thank you so much. I, I'm so glad you took the time to, to come on and, 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 you know, you are a true hockey player. You, 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 you gamed up. Appreciate it, man. Um, and let's have you on again. Okay. I'll be glad to do it. Appreciate what you're doing. And, uh, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. This is Mike Levitt, and you're listening to And If Love Remains.